Welcome back to Beyond Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career and life. Today's episode number 399 with Kurt Schmidt. Kraft led me to Wrigley when I was in Europe. Wrigley led me to uh, back to Kraft. Kraft led me to uh, Australia for Kraft, read Kraft General Foods, uh, Australasia. Uh, then I met a guy from Novartis who said, how would you like to run a global pharmaceutical business, Animal Health? Went to there. Uh, that led me to Novartis, owned a little company called Gerber Baby Products. You might know it, the Gerber Baby Food Company. And they needed a CEO to get it ready to sell in a few years. So in 2004, I came back to the U.S. to run the Gerber Baby Products Company. And I sold it to Nestle. And lo and behold, I was going to leave Nestle, you know, on a change of control. What's called a change of control. And then uh, Nestle said, we really like it. How would you like to run the, the global nutrition business out of Vivay, Switzerland? And I said, okay, but I'm not moving. And they said, okay, we don't care. We'll get you an apartment in uh, Montreux, which is really tough. Montreux, Switzerland, right above the jazz festival. Uh, and I did that for a while. Traveled a million miles in one year. Well, my guest today is an absolute rock star. Uh, there's a couple of reasons to listen. First of all, he started his career in marketing. Uh, he has been at the helm of companies or very senior at companies, including Kraft Foods, Wrigley's, Novartis, Nestle, the Blue Buffalo Company. Uh, he is on the board of Campbell Soup. <laughs> he uh, took uh, Blue Buffalo public. Uh, he was the head of Gerber when it was acquired by Nestle. Uh, he has an incredible history, and part of his advice is just focusing on the job in front of you, not having, you know, having a sense of where you want to go, but not planning out every step and just knocking out of the park whatever job you're working on. Tons to learn from his description of his previous jobs. His current role is at the Kronos Group, which is in the cannabis space. Uh, they do $50 million in sales, uh, $1.2 billion in cash. It really speaks to the credibility of this as an industry, why veterans may consider it as a career path, and just hearing what it's like after decades of being at the helm of very large companies, what it's like to take a more entrepreneurial twist and be at the helm of a very, very relatively small company. As always, at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find show notes with links to everything in this episode we discuss, as well as 398 other episodes just like this one. So with that, let's dive into my conversation with Kurt. Well, joining me today, today he is in Hilton Head, South Carolina. He travels quite a bit, but my guest is Kurt Schmidt. Kurt, welcome to Beyond the Uniform. Thank you. I want to give listeners a abbreviated bio for Kurt, and you really do have to abbreviate Kurt's bio because he's got such an impressive background. Uh, he is now the CEO of the Kronos Group, which is an innovative global cannabinoid company with international production and distribution across five different continents. Since graduating from the Naval Academy, he has held senior positions at Kraft Foods, Wrigley, Novartis, Nestle, the Blue Buffalo Company, and Campbell Soup Company. He holds an MBA from the University of Chicago, and Kurt spent 14 years working internationally in Germany, Hungary, Switzerland, and Australia. So, Kurt, we'll start with where we're at right now, and we'll kind of work our way back. But let's just say that, you know, later today you're, you're wandering around, you bump into another academy grad, and they say, so, Kurt, what is it that you do for a living? How do you explain that now? Yeah, I tell them I do a bunch of different things. So, uh, Kurt, you know, as you mentioned, I sit on the Campbell Soup Board, uh, so I'm a board member there and on their governance committee and their uh, cops committee. 
Uh, I'm also an investor in a couple of business, a company called Parabell, which is a unique company in protein replacement, actually dairy replacement using water lentils, harvesting water lentils. I'm also an investor in a company called Ripfan, which is a little confectionery company that makes Dutch waffles, if you know what that is. And uh, then I am the president and CEO of the Kronos Group. So Kronos Group is a cannabis company. Uh, It's on the TSX and the NASDAQ. Uh, It has a couple of strategic partners, one of them being Altria, which has around 40% of the company. That's the Altria Tobacco Company, the old Philip Morris. And then the other investor is a company called Gotham Green Partners, which is the largest private equity firm specializing in cannabis investments. And then, of course, we have other investors, a lot of retail investors as well. Our focus is on building a world-leading cannabis company. Uh, we have a couple of strategies. One of them is we are the leader in developing what's called cultured cannabis products. So think of the beer beer business. You don't need the plant. You can use using uh, fermentation. You could actually synthesize uh, the molecule, the end molecule, and that has some benefits. One, consistency. Two, we can actually extract at much lower cost rare cannabinoids. And then we put those in a unique product. So we're not in the adult use business in the U.S. because it's still not federally legalized, but we have a suite of brands in Canada, spinach being the largest one, which is in the uh, cannabis space. Uh, that does a uh, combination of THC, CBD products, and straight THC products, covering all the formats. Uh, It's a little bit of a quirky business, but, you know, flour, pre-rolls, vapes, edibles, you name it, uh, that portfolio goes in there. Internationally, we have a bunch of joint ventures, one in Australia, one in uh, out of Colombia. We also have an Israeli company. We are in the medical cannabis business in Israel. We have a research center there. And so um, we're a pretty comprehensive cannabis company. it's a small company, probably the smallest thing I've ever run. It's the only company I know or come in exposure with. We have, you know, a little north of uh, 50 million in sales and we've got 1.2 billion of cash on the balance sheet. So it's a little unique company that gives us a lot of ammunition to invest. So that's kind of what we're about in the short and skinny in an industry that is extremely complicated to explain, to say the least. Well, th- that's one thing I wanted to ask about is, um, This is a relatively new industry, and we've got you, and I think that every listener, even those on active duty, probably recognizes half of the companies that you have held senior roles at, so they know that you have a very credible background. You mentioned Altria. You mentioned, I I forget the name of the private equity group. So there's a lot of very serious players looking at this space. And I'm curious your thoughts, especially for the veteran or active duty member thinking about, okay, what industry am I going into next? Why is cannabis as an industry something they might want to consider, something they might not have considered before, but something growing that they might really want to be a part of? Yeah. First of all, yeah, it it, it, uh, it has attracted a lot of big players. You know, uh, the largest cannabis company, Cannabis Growth, is um, – the major shareholder is Constellation Brands, which is the private family-owned alcohol business out of the U.S., out of Rochester. So there's a lot of money in this industry. Uh, the scale of this industry and the growth rate, there's very few industries you can invent anymore. I mean, the last time was high-tech. Um, 
But this industry alone in the U.S. on the legal side is 40 billion, projected to get to 100 billion. Globally, uh, Europe is projected to be 100 billion someday. So we're talking about an industry that over the next 20 years could be 100 billion plus industry. To put that in context, uh, I took a pet food company public. Pet food has been around for ages, right? And that industry worldwide on the food side is around 75 billion, 80 billion. So the scope of the business is gigantic. Uh, the second one is it's professionalizing, right? This is not a bunch of guys running around in Grateful Dead t-shirts. So it is a pretty professional kind of uh, business. And the future of this business really looks at it like alcohol, like any other CPG, consumer products company uh, that's marketing unique brands and innovation and bringing unique products to consumers. So it really has the look and feel, and what our belief is, our hypothesis, is that this will be, someday this will be like a Nestle, right? It will be a CPG company industry of large note. So that's the attraction of it. Uh, it's also to do something completely different. If you're adventurous, it's it's crazy. So it's not as established as you, you know, you, I started at Kraft, right? Kraft's been around since the 1920s, right? So established business. This is not for the squeamish. This is like taking a chance if you're a risk taker and you want to get in something that's leading edge. If you've got this entrepreneurial spark that you'd rather work at an entrepreneurial company versus Nestle, then this is the kind of thing that uh, could be of interest. Size is great. Opportunity is great. And you can have an opportunity to evolve with an industry. So that's one of the things that for listeners, I found Kurt on LinkedIn and reached out to him. He was gracious enough to accept the email one of the things that intrigued me is I feel like in the 398 other interviews I've done, I often talk with people who leave the military and they go to a big company or they leave the military and they start a company. And what I think is really interesting about the outsider view of your story, Kurt, is that you had a history, it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, but for the most part, being at well-established, large companies, very senior roles, and then to go from established company, established industry to very tiny startup, relatively, and brand new industry. I'm kind of curious what prompted that for you, if that felt like you were jumping off a cliff, if that was like at what point you knew you wanted to do that. I mean, I was your classic. I left the military, went to one of these military interviewing sessions where they had, uh, you know, a bunch of companies, you know, and you you didn't control it, but you got interviews with people. So I came out of nuclear submarines, so most of them were like Booz Allen and people like that. But my last interview was with a guy from Kraft. And he I came in the room, he was the head of HR, and he looked at me and said, so, Kurt, what do you know about marketing? And I looked at him and said, is that like sales? And he laughed, and he had there was magazines on the coffee table. He said, okay, opens up the magazine, and there was an advertising ad in there, and showed it to me. He goes, what do you think of this ad? And I don't know what I said, can't remember, but they must have liked it because they invited me back. So the first point in my career is I've always taken a path that was a little different. I looked at it, what's the opportunity? So then I end up in Chicago and I meet the management team there. And the reason I took the job is it seemed like the oldest person was like 40. Everybody <laughs> was young, dynamic and going. I said, I don't know doodly squad about marketing. You know, I know our organization seems to know where it's going to go. So that's what I did. 
And it, you know, and it also paid the most of all the offers I had, which, you know, is not a, you know, I have no shame in admitting that either. But, you know, that's how I did it. I worked my way up craft. And then I had another turn. I got an opportunity to go to Europe. I met my, uh, my wife of 31 years now, but I met her at a craft conference and she was an R&D scientist, German from Munich, from the German headquarters. And we met, got to like each other and. I got this idea of, well, maybe I, I got a promotion, but I turned down the promotion, asked if they could get me to Europe. My boss said, hell, I don't know. I'll talk to the European head. Got lucky. They were just reorganizing Europe. They needed somebody for marketing, uh, global marketing in Europe in advance of what was called EC92, you know, where Europe was changing. Got there. It was supposed to be for two years, and I spent 14 years. Uh-oh, and I worked for Kraft. Kraft led me to Wrigley when I was in Europe. Ridley led me to uh, back to Kraft. Kraft led me to Australia for Kraft. I read Kraft General Foods, uh, Australasia. Then I met a guy from Novartis who said, how would you like to run a global pharmaceutical business, animal health? Went to there. Uh, that led me to Novartis. Owned a little company called Gerber Baby Products. You might know it, the Gerber Baby Food Company. And they needed a CEO to get it ready to sell in a few years. So in 2004, I came back to the U.S. to run the Gerber Baby Products Company. And I sold it to Nestle, and lo and behold, I was going to leave Nestle, you know, on a change of control, what's called a change of control. And then uh, Nestle said, we really like it, Kurt. How would you like to run the, the global nutrition business out of Vivay, Switzerland? And I said, okay, but I'm not moving. And they said, okay, we don't care. We'll get you an apartment in uh, Montreux, which was really tough, Montreux, Switzerland, right above the Jazz Festival. Uh, and I did that for a while. Traveled a million miles in one year. Because I was all over the place, a week in U.S., a week in Switzerland, and two weeks somewhere on the planet. Uh, was getting burnt out, and I had a buddy. That's why networking, by the way, is extremely important. Networking is critical. I had a buddy who was a big headhunter at a recruiting thing and uh, had this assignment on Blue Buffalo, or his office had the assignment. And uh, he said, you know what? You should talk to Kurt. <laughs> you know? I don't know if he's still happy at Nestle. He's on their executive committee, but it sounds something like he'd like. At Blue Buffalo, just to give you background, was started by an ex-Marine enlisted back in the 50s. He came out. He worked for uh, the ad agency. He was original madman. Uh, started a company called Sobe Juices. Sold that to PepsiCo for about $250 million, him and a partner. And wanted to figure out what he wanted to do with his kids. Make a long story short, they landed on this pet food idea. From nothing in 2003, uh, they built it up to when I came, it was around $450 million. And they were going to sell it to a strategic but they couldn't get the money they wanted for it. They had a private equity, majority private equity, and they said, listen, we don't like this. We need to get a value on this company, so let's take it public, and that'll give us a market value. And Bill said, great idea, but I'm 72, and forget it. I can't stand the bankers, and I can't stand Wall Street, so I ain't doing it. we got to bring somebody in. And uh, that was me. I came in and I met Bill, looked at his business proposition. It took me all of 10 minutes to say, this thing's a rocket ship. I got a piece of the company. Got to take it public. Uh, we went public uh, back in 2014. Uh, it was highly successful, one of the best CPG public offerings on the market. And then eventually in 2017, it got bought by General Mills for $8.1 billion. So here's a company started from zero to $8.1 billion. Needless to say, the private equity firm, which was the majority owner, did very, very, very well. The Bishop family did really well. And I didn't do too bad either. So uh, that's how these things happen. Most of them are developing yourself, being prepared, having radar open, networking, and being able to seize the opportunity, right? And sometimes I did something that 
initially didn't seem like it was a dumb decision, but in the long run, it was a really good one. Uh, so that's kind of where careers don't just – some people plan them, very few. Careers are made by really focusing on what you're doing now and being open, getting those opportunities again, and then taking the opportunity that most people wouldn't take, right? And, uh, in fact, I'll tell you, I was the first marketing person Kraft brought in from junior military. Most of the brand managers were all MBAs from Northwestern, Michigan, places like that. I just got lucky, and, again, luck plays a lot in this. The head of the division was an ex-Marine officer wounded in Vietnam, uh, Wharton grad, P&G, or P&G had this program. He comes over to Kraft and says, you know what, guys? This junior military officer program is really interesting. We need to bring a couple of guys in. And I was the first one they brought in. So I had a little added pressure of making sure this thing worked. I ended up for Kraft actually running their junior military officer program. I think I brought in about, oh, probably 20 people, including the first woman that we brought in from the military, from Air Force Academy. So we did a lot of things. But it's a lot of being at the right place at the right time and having the wherewithal and having the network where people remember that guy. I've got something. Here's this guy. Maybe he's interested. I can't tell you how many times that's happened in my career. So many things I want to ask based on that. First of all, I love the the quote that you had there about taking the opportunity most wouldn't take. Do you view your current situation with Kronos Group? Is the cannabis industry still something that most people wouldn't go into? And like, do you see yourself doing that right now? Or do you feel like this is past the mainstream point where it's, you know, more common? Yeah, it depends on your, you know, risk reward side, right? So any of these, what I call emerging growth companies like Blue Buffalo, you know, those are high risk, high reward if you're on an equity play. So the best way to describe it is when I left Nestle to go to Blue Buffalo, I took a 30% cut pay but I took a big equity stake, right? So, again, you have the appetite. In my case, um, you know, I was pretty, you know, pretty reasonably set off. Um, but I got to tell you, everybody looks at the glory. Oh, my God, look how well he did. But I can tell you the, the hedge funds came in and shorted our stock for a while. We went from $35 to below the, the IPO price at $17, right? So I was wiped out, right? So, you know. Uh-huh. This house in South Carolina I'm talking from, we delayed building for a while (laughs) versus plan. But you have to have the appetite to risk. Normally, the best time to do that is when you're young, you're coming out of the military. If you don't have a lot of obligations, you can take that risk reward. But again, if you're going to go into this emerging growth or this venture side, you certainly want to be with something that's going to give you equity because you're not playing for salary. What the advantage of big companies are is you get a wonderful education and the ability. I mean, with Kraft and what some of these companies gave to me in my early career, because uh, they could afford it, right, was tremendous. So, again, you have to ask, you know, the individual as you're going through the process of looking at things and you've got multiple opportunities is to look at where do you see yourself? What's your end goal? My end goal, I didn't know where I was going, but I wanted to drive the ship. You know, this is typical Naval Academy or West Point or Air Force Academy. You want to be the captain, right? So you, you look at it and say, I want something that may get me to that pathway. But what that's going to take, how I get there, that's going to differ as people, um, you know, progress their careers. And again, I can't stress enough. It's you, sometimes you have to take something that's a little harder road, right? And not take the easy promotion, right? Um, and I've done that a few times and it's turned out well, but it's a risk. 
I'm a tourist appetite, yeah. I just love, you know, from your story, there's so many points. Like when you turned down a promotion because you met your now wife and you wanted to go to Europe, I can imagine I see in your story repeatedly exiting your comfort zone, being one of the first to go into marketing, going internationally. Like you just continuously bring on situations that it seems like evokes you out of your comfort zone, which I really admire. I can imagine every step of the way, it was probably pretty comfortable to either stay there or continue to work your way up. And you have to focus on the job you're in. You don't get anything, you know, despite everything going on today, we're still a performance driven world and you have to earn it. I wouldn't have gotten there unless my boss's boss said, this guy is out of the box. We love this guy, right? He's doing a great job. I don't know, but I'm going to call the head of Europe and do it. She picked up the phone and said, let's see what they got. So that it's important to remember that. And, uh, and I always tell people, even outside of the Naval Academy, nobody cares more about you than you, right? So you have to think about what you want, you know, how you're going to get there. The people who fail at this strategy are too focused on the next step. They're always these next step. They, they're not happy in the step they're in. They're always three steps ahead, right? And you've got to have a plan. But remember, nobody's going to do anything unless you deliver on what you're doing now. That opens the door for you. And be willing to, to admit failure. I mean, I've left some things because I did some things. And uh, I left Kraft to go to Wrigley because what I did at Kraft, I wasn't happy with. And I, you know, I wanted to cut my losses quick. And there comes Wrigley saying, I'll, you know, we're going to give you this job, right, in Munich. And, okay, great. So I'll do that. So you're going to have failures. It's not a continuous upward curve. It's more of a ramp function. You go up, you kind of plateau, maybe a little down, and then you go up. And so you have to have a perspective on your career. And, you know, they're, and, and they're always, I'm not a superstar. There's always an exception. These guys don't seem to ever have, have failed at anything, right? That's the 1%. The rest of us schlubs, you know, we're going to have to get through these things. So you have to have a realistic view of that. Um, and, and, you know, and I think that, that can really make your career and open some things you might not have thought you could get. I, I love that. And I had that in my notes when you said it earlier, the importance of focusing on the task at hand. And 200 episodes ago, I interviewed Stephen Reinemann, who a decade ago was CEO of Pepsi. And he said the same thing, which is really coming out of your interview, is like focusing on the job. It wasn't always about looking ahead. It was, I'm going to do the best job at where I'm at. And I especially like that because I feel like so much today is about everyone has a side hustle, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I feel like oftentimes for people, it comes at the detriment of whatever their main job is and really knocking that out. And like you said, you got these opportunities because your boss loved you because you were doing such a great job in your role. So I think that's such great advice and practical advice for our listeners, no matter where they're at right now, to just do their best work. And that generally leads to more opportunity. Absolutely. And it may not be where you are because let's face it, your career, like I said, there are those people that can move up, uh, one channel, one company, one career, and get there. But they're far few between. You're going to be taking steps, and you're investing in yourself, right? You don't want to take a job where you say, if I do this well, will anybody care, right? Again, I sometimes I tell people, think of you as a brand, right? How do you develop that brand? And if you do that, then you take a broader – you get a broader view and broader things come to you. So I've had some instances where sometimes I volunteer for things. That nobody else wanted to do. But I saw it. I said, well, oh, geez, if I do this well, and this really is a cross-functional thing, 
you know, this will be noticed, right? So, you know, you have to take some of those. It was a crappy thing. I really didn't want to do it, but I did it. And it turned out to be a gold mine. It what got me to Europe. That's awesome. What about, you know, you, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times how networking has made a difference in your own career life. Do you think about staying top of mind with people or checking in with people? Like, is there anything that you're doing to keep that network alive? Or is it just a byproduct of working at companies with people you like and establishing good relationships and eventually it leads to something? Yeah, I mean, there are some people I stay in touch with that I want to, um, you know, Bill Bishop is one, you know, Jim Kiltz. I sit on the, the University of Chicago uh, steering committee for the Kilt School of Marketing at the Booth School in Chicago. There are colleagues I've had, but I do a lot more. Listen, some people say I'm too old to be, you know, if I pick my age and my head of innovation, chief innovation officer at Kronos, I think we're older than everybody else that reports to me. I mean, you know, so I'm kind of long in the tooth here. So I'm more of, helping others that were in my career. But I'll, I'll say again, I'm not going to recommend somebody to somebody else. I placed people. I just placed, uh, I helped uh, a colleague of mine uh, that was one of my sales heads at one of my companies just get a CEO's role in Florida. But I'm not going to do that unless that person, because that's my reputation too. So that's why I get back to, if you do well with somebody, keep that network up. And if they like you, because they recommend, you know, and you never know where it's going to come from. So I do a lot of, uh, you know, I've got colleagues I'll help with career decisions they're making or they're asking me for recommendations. I do a lot of that. I obviously know a lot of headhunters, so I do some recommendation on them. But it's for more senior roles right now at this point in my career. It's usually for like function heads or, you know, positions like that going forward. But so my network now is, you know, it's people at a level that, private equity firms, those types of people. Knowing those is where an opportunity like Kronos comes from somebody like me. (laughs) I'm wondering, as you look back on the entrepreneurial part of your story, what has been the most challenging part? Does it feel essentially the same as when you were heading up units or companies, or is it different because it's at a smaller stage? Like, I'm just kind of curious if it's a brand new muscle or if it just feels like the same skill set just applied differently. It's a different skill set at times because, you know, big companies like the military, you got somebody that does everything. Right. You know, you got an office, you got a secretary, the boss has 50 people under him. You know, I used to tell people coming into Blue Buffalo from big companies, you know, one of the things you're going to have to get used to is uh, at Nestle, I had an office in Switzerland. I had my old CEO's office in uh, Gerber and New Jersey. I had, now I didn't ask for this, it just gave it to me. I used a secretary in New Jersey that I had two in Switzerland because one, you know, separation of duties only did travel and things like that. You know, and I get the Blue Buffalo and they put me in some little crappy conference room, you know, with desk, you know, big mess and I'm, I'm the running company. So you got to get used to, uh, you know, it's a little bit different. So I tell people, Hey, listen, you're looking, you know, for a secretary and all this. And if you're the head of finance and I need somebody to go drive the truck, you're driving the truck. Yeah, you know? yeah. So it's a different mindset. Yeah. And, some people fail at that. And I always tell people coming in for big companies, spend a whole career at Kronos and I put people in other emerging growth companies. I always want them to, you got to think about this because it's a different lifestyle and you're suddenly you feel like, Jesus, I worked my way up to get all these trappings of the office and now I don't have them. So there is a mindset. We've had people fail. They come from big companies. They go to entrepreneurial and they're a total disaster, right? 
and other people, I like to think I'm one of them, just shine to. It's like, geez, I've been waiting for this. You know, I can jump in. Military guys usually do pretty good because they get different environments they can adjust to. You know, one of my secrets, I think, is, you know, being, you know, I grew up in a big family. You go to the Naval Academy and then you go, you know, shipboard and, you know, on the boat. You know, unless you're a total adult, you usually have a pretty good EQ. I always said the military guys have pretty good emotional quotient, you know, IQ. They know how to get in. They can adjust the situation. They can fit in, right? You can go to Europe and not act like a, you know, a, you know, American, right? You get in there. You understand, okay, this is how the German business world works or the Italian. So they usually have great ability to adapt, understand, and leverage, right? I always say that's one of the benefits uh, of a military officer. And you got to have that kind of thing And when you go to emerging growth companies. And you got to have that sense of, and again, it's risky. You know, you're really worried about next day sales. You know, big company like Nestle, I didn't worry about the next day sales. Maybe the weekly, but more just the monthly and quarterly, right? But this company, you're trying to, our biggest chart at Blue Buffalo, we showed all the employees every week was the weekly sales. We had it from 2003 all the way to where I left at 2017. Wow. Because that's what it's about. Wow. <laughs> you know, you know, are we selling more to consumers? Wow. So that's the mind spirit of it. And every EGC or entrepreneurial company has a different style, depending on the industry and whether the owner is still a significant player in that. Um, so you just have to make that transition. People I've always told them, really pay attention when you interview and you're looking at something. You're there in you, but you gotta be checking this out. You gotta say, am I ready for this? Do I understand it? What's a day like? How does the thing work? You know, so you get a sense of this is what it's gonna be like. So you don't come in there and say, oh my God, what did I get myself into? Right? That kind of feeling. So many, so many nuggets of gold. I don't want to waste time revisiting them, but I imagine listeners may want to listen to this twice. I love everything about what you're talking about, the co-process of interviewing, evaluating the other person. Like there's so much wisdom here. One question I wanted to ask, you said you racked up a million miles in a year. You know, my perspective on your career is you have such incredible stamina. Like you have been just going and going and going. And I know that so many listeners often ask about work-life balance or things like that. What advice do you have for them? Because I'm looking at you in one of multiple houses now. I'm imagining you have so much autonomy and freedom in your life now because you've worked so hard to get there. What advice do you have for a listener who's on a submarine right now and concerned about their eventual work-life balance? Yeah, I think you uh, submarine's good training because you're away from home for six months or right? four months at a time. I think you have to look at that and your lifestyle and your family and make sure you don't do. See, I, you know, again, uh, you know, at one point in my career, I have a great wife. I mean, first of all, she handles, you know, she doesn't really need me. So that helps, too. But you have to really assess that. I've had people wanting to volunteer for things or I'm going to go do this. And this comes into play separation. Um you know, I'm going to work in Africa and leave my family in Switzerland. I usually try to size up that person and say, do they have a stomach to do this or mm-hmm. not? So you really have to think about that because that's part of it. If you have a family, it's not just your decision. You're dragging along some mm-hmm. other people, right? And so you really have to think, you know, and I tell them, hey, business trip for a week. Do you find yourself like dying because you don't have your family there or you're worried about them or Wise, you know, you've got to assess that because that kills everything, you know. Um, so you just have to say, you know, are we ready to do it? People who wanted to go overseas, you know, I want to meet 
you know, I, I knew the wife. Are you adventurous? You're going to learn. You want? You, he's going to get transferred to Italy. Are you interested in learning Italian? You don't know Italian. Are you going to be able to do it while your husband's in business trips all over the place? So you have to size up the family and see if they if they got it and they're capable. Otherwise, you may want to move them into. You may want to say maybe I do a six month stint, but we only do a year. You know, I, I'm kind of the extreme. I, believe me, I, I'm the extreme. When I went to Novartis, my family was in Australia for a bunch of reasons. I left them there. So, I mean, talk about separation. That was like, you know, trying to get over the, you know, get, you know, I would be back every three months. Wow. Kind of thing, right. So you have to, you have to look at yourself and say, can we handle this? If we can't, and your partner has to be able to do it and sign up for it. And a lot of times the partner doesn't realize what it mm-hmm. takes too, right? That's why I like sometimes I put people overseas for three months. To have them kind of see it and say, okay, did you like it? Are you adapting? Yep. You know, you know, and uh, so you have to look at that and have the appetite. If that's not for you, it's not for you. You know, there are many mountains that lead up to God and many paths up mm. on the side of the mountain, right? So you, you got to kind of, again, that's knowing yourself, your own EQ. Mm-hmm. What do I like? What things do I don't like, right? And um, where have I been happiest and where have I been miserable? Don't seek the miserable type of jobs mm-hmm. because it ain't, ain't going to change. So that, that's a real hard one and probably one of the trickiest things for managers to do because it's all trial and error. Like I said, I've made bonehead decisions. I'm like, but I've been able to recover, right? And don't kill yourself when you make a bad decision and almost look at it as a sunk cost problem. It's really failing for you. And I've had managers say, I can't, I can't do this anymore. You know, it's my family. And if you're good, again, this gets back to performance driven. Mm-hmm. If you're really getting a job done, organizations nine times out of 10 will say, okay, this person is great. They're doing a fantastic job. We get it. It didn't work. Faust isn't happy or whatever the issue yeah. is. No fault. Now you can't do that two or three times with the same company. But you'll get a pass. That's why it's important to deliver. And, uh, and that'll work out for you. I love that. What about, um, I'll ask the same question in a second for Kronos, but I, I'm aware that we haven't really covered the ground on the show before around um, on the board of Campbell's. We haven't really talked about what that looks like. And could you just paint a picture for listeners who might not be familiar with the way that a board of directors operates? Like, what does that look like for you? Is it a quarterly meeting? Are you like, how, how does that impact your yearly life? Yeah, the board meetings, uh, and then there's COVID, which changed it a bit. Uh, board meetings uh, usually have a cycle of about six six times a year that the board meets. The board function is strategic oversight of the management. Board has a focus on different issues facing the company. So their job is not to do the strategy, but approve the strategy and monitor its execution, right? And its ability is making sure that uh, you have a robust succession planning system, and that you have the right people at the senior leadership. So there's oversight of the talent, of the senior talent. Mm-hmm. So that's what a board's, it, the way you describe a board to people is always a board member, it's it's nose in, hands out. You're not running the day-to-day operation. You're there to represent all the stakeholders, and that includes shareholders, society, everything else that that, that entails. So that's the board's function. Then it has a lot of legal functions as part of what it does. It has to prove, you know, it has to prove the annual plans. It has to prove uh, uh, the AGM, the annual shareholders meeting, and what campus there, and and has to prove uh, the senior management's compensation and all those kinds of functions that that go into the board. 
Um, and then there are issues that have grown in importance to board over time. ESG issues, for example. Environmental, societal, and government issues have become bigger. Cyber, ensuring that the management has good cyber plan. There are issues that come up in board governance that, that affect the board. So that, that's the role. Uh, it's usually a day and a half meeting. You have uh, the full board parts of it, and you have your committee meetings. You know, you have an audit committee, a finance committee, a governance committee, a uh, comps and bend committee. And so you'll have a role that's as a board member, but then you'll also be on usually two committees you end up on. So that's kind of like the board function. So, you can, you know, six times a year, day and a half, you're talking about 12 days of commitment. And as a sitting CEO, you and most boards will have a limit on how many a CEO sitting CEO can have in addition, right? So I couldn't do six boards and run a company at the same time. So, mm-hmm. uh, that, but it adds, it adds more time to what I'm doing. So yes, it does, uh, you know, require me to juggle more balls in the year. And, and how does that compare with, um, Kronos? I'm, I'm, I'm imagining no day is typical, but on a given week, what sort of activities do you at this, at, at this stage? Are you focused on partnerships, marketing, product? Like how do you, Divide your time. Well, so Lucio is responsible for everything reporting to him, right? So there's the country, you know, P&Ls, what countries are doing, country programs. There is joint ventures and those. The CEO is involved with running the ship. So all the department heads, to use an analogy, are reporting them. But the, the CEO has to delegate, but it overall is responsible. If you run run that boat aground, you know, uh, they're not going to go after the, the division head of the electronics division <laughs> or the DCA. They're going after you, you know. So it's total responsibility for the running of the company. And that is what the company does, setting the strategic board uh, strategy for the company. And then I have a board at Kronos getting the, the board approves that. Uh, the annual planning, the culture, the CEO has a big role in making sure that we're living the culture of the company, the care and feeding of, of the organization, making sure we were really developing our people, a performance-driven mentality, all the things involved on the people side. And then it's handling stakeholders, right? We have shareholders. The shareholders want to talk to me, sometimes not very nicely, depending on how we're performing. But you have the stakeholders, and they're uh, stakeholders within shareholder base, the consumers, there's our retail customers, there's government, uh, all these stakeholders. The CEO has the principal role of managing and keeping that going in the right direction. So the best analogy, it really is, you know, it's the captain of the ship. Uh, of, of this. Now, it could be a whole squadron if it's something big like uh, Rhino Moon from PepsiCo, or it could be something smaller like Kronos. I'm also always curious, are there any resources that have helped you in your career? That could be a book, a conference, a podcast, a movie, anything that's helped you that you would recommend to our audience? I'm not big on books, although I read tons of business books when I got out of the military. I mean, but I can't remember any of them, to be honest with you. Mentors are really good. Mentors are good. Mentors, somebody who believes in will get you in the right position. And, you know, I, I was very lucky. I didn't know a lot about marketing. My first boss, she was great. And I can remember coming in, I was so afraid. I could I'm not on a submarine anymore. I got to watch my language, right? Right. And Cindy McCarthy, who was my brand manager, you know, I was an assistant brand manager. First meeting I had with her, something was happening. She got a call on her and she was swearing like a truck driver. I'm like, okay, I can do this. This will work out great. But she really knew marketing. 
she had really good branding, really good insights. And she taught me. She brought me in on things and said, here, here's how I'm looking at this thing. This is what we're doing. This is how we think about it. I know this is not engineering. This is emotional and other stuff. But I learned a lot from that. I had great mentors along the way. Uh, people that really took an interest in me and wanted to get with me. Bill Bishop. I mean, I'm still learning. I'm 64. Bill was, he's 74. Probably the best marketing mind I ever met. I learned a lot from Bill. Learned a lot of how to run an op. This guy's a serial entrepreneur, right? You know, uh, he owned his own ad agency, started Sylvie Juices, uh, Blue Buffalo. Learned a lot from him. Learned a lot from him, you know. And so that's what you have to do. And you have to be cognizant of that. Hey, what am I learning from this guy or her? What's she giving me? What, what can I learn more from? And, uh, ask, and ask that person to do more. Hey, I like what you're doing here. Can you explain that to me? I, I was not afraid to ask a lot of stupid questions, right? Because I came in from... The Navy, I didn't know half this crap in marketing. I had a, you know, what's this, what's that, you know, uh, but, you know, you know, and, and observe. The other thing I did is observe really good people, right? Because you're going to work for an asshole at some point in your career. So what you have to do is look at it and don't be like that plebe. You know, there was always that plebe, and I had one of our guys in our, our plebe here, where they just got railed by the upperclassmen, tears in their eyes as they came back. Swearing they'd never be like that guy. They usually end up being like that guy. <laughs> if look at bad leadership, that's just as important to good leadership. Make a mental note of why this guy's so good. Why do people like them? Why, why, why do people always talk about this person? And then look at what they do and steal with pride. Most of my leadership style, I didn't invent. I stole it from somebody that I thought was really good. <laughs> I said, well, it's really good how that person does that, you know, and, um, and be yourself. The one thing people can spot a phony a mile away. You've got a certain type of thing. Know what your brand is and how you approach things and be yourself. But learn from other people. Incorporate it. It's the best thing you can do is incorporate good and look at bad people, too. Right. Uh, you know, I had CEOs and I said, how did this person get to be a CEO? I mean, how does that happen? But I learned a lot to say, you know, at some point, you know, because you hear what your colleagues say and everybody, you know, good leaders. You can smell them. You can hear, you hear how people talk about it. Learn from them. Also learn from the bad ones. Make a mental note. Because careers are, there are usually very few things that derail a person's career. One of them is just being a total asshole. I have to tell you, we had, at, in our S1, when we went public, we had our culture, we called it the NA policy. And the FTC and the SEC said it's the first time we've seen no assholes put in. That was it actually in our, in our S1 <laughs> official document. Submitted to the government. So, uh, you know, be wary of the derailers. And there are certain derailers that derail people's career. Insensitivity is one. Arrogance is the second. Careerism, right? And we talked about that. People are always, you know, aren't happy where they are. They think you should be two levels up and are always not getting enough money or they didn't get the bonus or they should have been, you know, you know, derail. And not even counting lack of capability to do what you're doing. Because most people are hired. It's very rare that you hire somebody in a position and they're moving up and they get in the position. You say, oh, they're just they're out of their, you know, they're out of their depth here. It's usually it's the leadership side things that kill people. That's why I tell people, you know, junior military officers learn a lot about leadership and what takes to do it. When you go to the academies, you learn a lot. You get that real life experience. That's important because that people who derail later in their career, it's usually those types of things integrity. You know, we've had many stories of CEOs getting dumped for integrity lately. 
you know, and that those are the derailers. And that's what a Naval Academy or West Point or Air Force or wherever, you spend so much time on that side of it, take that with you. You know, it's going to be a different game and different people and different levels, a lot of money. You know, uh, you didn't make a lot of money in the military. You'll be someday thing where there's a lot of money at stake. Money ruins people. It's those leadership qualities, I tell you, that, that'll last you a lifetime. Such a good answer. I, you know, I feel like whenever I ask about resources, people always point to books. But one of the things I like most about what you just said is it's like, it's not about stuff that you're reading in a book. It's about being observant. It's about learning from mentors. It's about seeing good and bad examples of leadership and learning and deciding what you want to be like. And then also this sense of like the integrity and the humility and all of these traits that will keep you from those few career derailers. I know we're at the end of our time and I just always like to keep the question, last question open ended and you can interpret it as either what have we not covered that you want to make sure listeners know before we wrap up or it could just be any final words of wisdom that you want to leave. Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, again, I want to impart to everybody that it's a lot of what your character is when you move out there and having a vision, a path that you want to go, but not laid out, you know, you know, anal compulsively. It's like you got a general direction. Where do I want to be? And then taking those steps and being, again, really observant as things go on in your career um, and try to have fun and don't take it too seriously when something doesn't work out because that's basically what's going to happen at some point anyway. So enjoy it and then pay it back. Again, I was lucky to get into craft, right? They weren't, you know, that was, an, and believe me, most of the brand management senior leadership wasn't all that hot about the idea, <laughs> you know, and do it. And, and recognize what's changing. I can tell you one thing is changing is MBA schools are looking at, you know, they want you more experience. They want you to show leadership. All the things that we used to get, it makes it harder now. That's kind of what they're looking for now. It's not the old, uh, you went from college and you went to MBA school and now you're there, right? You know, they want you to get those experiences. You have two qualities, mostly excellent leadership skills, running teams, coming in and knowing how to run teams, get the best out of people using, you know, you can't have all superstar A players. You're going to have and how to get the best out of that. That's what you bring. You bring that leadership stuff. The fact that you may not know marketing or you're not quite sure, you know, how cash flow thing works, you'll pick that up because and be inquisitive learning that. People will gravitate to you and you'll find that you can have a great career and you'll move up and there'll be more. And I know colleagues from the military all over the place doing some really unique, great things that, you know, I'm not a unique career uh, by any means. So it's it's get there and go for the journey. Have the end game in mind, but know it's a journey that you got to get there. Well, thank you so much, Kurt. And for listeners at uh, beyondtheuniform.org, we'll have show notes. We'll have links to more information about Kronos, about Kurt, about his background. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. My pleasure. Best of luck to you guys. Surface, surface, surface. Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our Chief of Staff, Steve Bain, our Editor, Lex Brown, and our Head of Social Media, Janelle Hanf. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. 
Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. Third of all, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for-purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.